You're listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Matt Loverin and me, Jim Shamaria. Our goal is to start a conversation about life and leadership in the local church. Welcome back to the Pastoral Calling Podcast. I'm Jim. And I'm Matt. And this is our second episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about multi-generational ministry and our experiences with that and what that looks like, some of the challenges and some of the strengths of uh, being a ministry that focuses on all people, all walks of life. And those are really the kind of churches that you and I grew up in, is Uh churches that ministered to children, to teenagers, to uh, young adults, and also... Uh, the older generation, all coming together on Sundays, uh, not just for a worship service, but for congregational life, for picnics and potlucks and softball games. And there was a real order to that kind of coming together as as a church of many generations. Yeah, very family-like. So let's get into it. Of course, with a ministry uh, like that, there are a lot of strengths. The value of being able to learn from people who not only are different places in their spiritual walk, but people who just have different approaches to life. Like I think different generations view life differently. And so to be able to talk about the faith from from their different perspectives is, is really helpful. Yeah, it brings a real diversity to the local life of the congregation. I think many times today we think of diversity only in terms of ethnic diversity, but there's also this diversity of age and generation that creates a real richness to the life of the church. And uh, older people, uh, grandparent age, building into young children, for example, and uh, adults who are not your parents who provide an example of how to live (laughs) into the Christian faith and to live that more maturely as you take those steps. All of those dynamics are in play as you see Uh, coming into adulthood, for example, and seeing the parents of young children and thinking about what it would be like to get married and to have children of your own. And you see the faith being modeled all the way through life. Right. You see those examples. And like, I think it's funny you made that comment about not your parents, because it is true. You know, you can hear the exact same thing from your parents and from not your parents. And it makes a lot more, (laughs) it means a lot more coming from those other people. It makes a big difference. Now this, you can look at data for this. Uh, the Barna Group, David Kinnaman, who wrote uh, Unchristian and Not a Fan, these recent books detailing the, the drift of millennial generations away from the local life of the congregation. In their research, they saw that the, the most crucial factor in young adults 18 to 25 staying a part of the local church and remaining a part of that congregational life into their 20s was the question of whether they had a meaningful relationship with an adult who was not their parent. I wonder why that is. Just somebody other than mom and dad. Yeah. (laughs) There's something really important about that dynamic. I wonder if it's uh, something that's deeply human, something that's tribal, something that goes beyond my immediate family. Sure. And I think maybe sometimes when you're trying to kind of find your own existence, you know, as a, as a young person, there's kind of like this desire to depart from what your parents or, you know, guardian or whatever forced you to do. And so if there's somebody who's outside of that, who's also doing that, that's just another confirmation that, okay, maybe this isn't just my parents being weird, crazy, super religious, but maybe this is like, like that guy's cool. That woman's cool. 
So, yeah. For sure. And I can remember an experience just like that from when I was in junior high youth group. And I can remember being a kid who desperately wanted to graduate from the Awana program. And I thought, finally. <laughs> the gonna, vests only go so big. <laughs> I'm going to be done with Awana. And those jewels won't poke me in the chest anymore. And those pins. And you get all sweaty with the pins. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Your chest. You remember those yeah. days? The neckerchief that you had to wear. <laughs> do they do? I, they don't do the neckerchief. They don't do it. It's like a wear. polo shirt. Yeah, it's like super a, comfortable yeah. now. They're weak these days, these kids. <laughs> but I wanted to get out of Awana and get into youth group. And then when I got into youth group, they started Awana for junior <laughs> hires. <laughs> and I rebelled against that so hard. Finally, I got into high school youth group, and it was in an interim where we didn't have a youth pastor, but I had a. Uh, an adult in the church who had the youth group over to his house mm. for really just talking. We sat in a circle in his living room, in chairs, on the floor, all around his living room, and we'd talk about the Bible, we'd talk about scripture, we'd talk about Christian life and what it meant. And it was so powerful to be not in the church building, but to be in somebody's home that wasn't your parents and wasn't related to you but still it had this desire to have a meaningful impact on your life. Yeah. When you're not in the church building, I think we have different expectations. You know, like when somebody's in a church, you expect them to be, you know, all super Christian-y or whatever. But when you see them carrying that on in their homes or in their workplace or whatever, that's a really inspiring thing. And so I think as young people, that's really uh, something that leaves a, a big impression. So I can see how that stat really is connected to to those experiences. I think we both had um, people like that, especially I can think of some men uh, in my church growing up that, you know, four or five guys that I still today look at as, wow, these guys had a really big impact on my life. Um, my dad is a pastor and was a pastor, and so he had a huge impact on me in that way. But again, there's kind of that, that idea of people who are other than um, your parents that, that help in that way. Being a multi-generational church allowed that to happen um, in, a, in a way that I think wouldn't have been possible if our church was just, you know, whatever the current age group was called at that time. For sure. And one of the things that's remarkable about that is that you can run into these individuals later in life. You yeah. run into them now, and they are seemingly oblivious to the fact that they had such an impact on your life. Yeah, isn't that weird? Because I can remember where I was sitting. I can remember what the building looked like around me. I can remember the smells of the building in these old churches. And Which is a very... It's a childhood great, memory. Well, right? yeah, but the smell of old churches is... Oh, they... They all smell the same. <laughs> a little mildew, a little musk. Yeah. So I can remember the impact that these individuals had on me. And if you run into them later in life, if we run into them now they're almost oblivious to the fact that they had that impact. They were just being faithful. They were showing up to teach Sunday school, be an Awana leader, be a youth group volunteer, and they were just showing up. Yeah. And that's all it took, really, for them to have that impact. They didn't even need to be a Bible college graduate or a super Christian in any way. They were just showing up and bringing themselves and their own walk with Christ yeah. to that relationship. And I think we often kind of are held back from doing this stuff, or, or I imagine some people maybe because they feel like they're not cool enough or they're not young enough or whatever. But I remember there's this older 
gentleman from our church. His name was Wilson. And at the time when I was in Awana, so, you know, I was 10, 11 years old. He was probably in his 70s, but he was there every week and he would play the Sparky song on the piano. And, you know, culturally, there was no connection between me and him. We didn't like the same things or do the same things or anything like that. But his presence uh, there is still something I remember today. And I think that, again, there's the value of, of the multi-generational and striving for that, um, not just seeing if it happens, but being intentional about it. And I think Gary's going to talk more about that later on in the show. At the same time that there's all of these strengths that you and I have benefited from in a multi-generational ministry, there's also some challenges that that brings to local church life. It's hard. It's difficult. It can be messy at times. I'm thinking right off the top of my head of of worship styles and uh, a worship service where you have varied preferences in music, right. very varied preferences in songs. Uh, the church where I grew up, we had uh, an order of service that was very fixed, <laughs> and it had these weird words like benediction and postlude and uh, call to worship and offertory built into the bulletin every week, and it was very rigid. And you'd sing two or three hymns, and that was it. And you'd that sing. was always great when you were a kid, though, because you can like check down how much longer you're, till the church you're, is. You're making over. your way through exactly. <laughs> and then, if you were there, were worship choruses or something like that, you would sing those on Sunday nights. You know, it'd be a more casual, <laughs> relaxed feel. Um, but today, worship styles is is a real struggle in many churches that are trying to be multi generational. Because who do you please? Right. Yeah, and that's a hard thing because I think we all know that there is no right worship style and, you know, there's not a theologically correct way to or not to use a guitar or whatever. Uh, but for me, when I when it comes to anything like that, my thoughts always go to Paul's words of not putting any stumbling block in front of anybody. And so is it possible that the way I construct my worship service, regardless of any theological aspect of it, is there a way that my worship service can push people away because either it's too rigid or too unrigid, unstructured? Uh, Or is there any way that the way that I'm dressed could push someone towards the gospel or away from the gospel and like really trying to be very intentional about everything I do as a leader of the church, as a pastor of celebration to, um, to not put any stumbling blocks in front of people. And I think that's a challenge that becomes more uh, visible when you have a multi-generational church because there are so many preferences, there are so many potential things that could become stumbling blocks to people. But yeah, that, that's just one of those challenges that comes with a multi-generational church that I think it's important to be aware of and, and I try to be maybe to a fault too aware of um, but if you're not trying to cater to one specific generational preference, you got to kind of think about those things. But one of the things that I've also found at my church is the multi-generational churches that really work are the ones that are full of people who are okay with things not being exactly how they like it. Like the older people at my church, every now and then they'll make a comment about the drums being too loud or something like that but they're still there every single Sunday. They sit in the back because it's loud, but they're still there and they know that that's not their preference, but they're still going to to be a part of that and they're still going to be there. And so 
I think when you run into problems is when you get people who aren't willing to be flexible on preferences, then it's hard to be multi-generational. We use the word family oftentimes to talk about the life of the local church. And isn't that what you do yeah. when you show up with a large group of not your immediate family where everyone's very comfortable with each other, but with your extended family, you know, you've got the, the crazy uncle and you've <laughs> got the loud cousin and we're all quirky and we all don't quite fit in. We all don't make sense. And we have to have that, that little bit of give with one another to make the whole thing work. On top of that, besides just preferences and styles and whatever, there's also like the actual structures of the ministry. The church that I grew up in, we did Sunday school every single Sunday. Before church, we had an hour of Sunday school. Uh, the church I'm at now, at Celebration, we still do Sunday school every Sunday, but the attendance is much less than it was when I grew up. Uh, maybe even a better example is the Wednesday night Bible study I do which um, we have a, a fairly good spread now, but for a while, I think the average age of the Wednesday night Bible study was something like probably 55 or 60, um, just because generationally younger people don't really do that sort of non-Sunday morning worship service thing. And so along with preferences of style, there's also preferences of how do we actually operate? Um, those are questions that we need to ask. And they're practical questions that are important for every single congregation, but every single congregation is going to address those slightly differently. So there's no universal formula that we can give to, to try to apply that in every situation. I know in our church, we have uh, Sunday school after the morning worship service. And if we can get a third of our people to stay for that second hour, that feels like a real victory. Mm -hmm. And I was talking with a friend, uh, not connected with, with my church or with any of my ministries, uh, who said, yeah, I go to this church and we only go there for an hour on Sunday, but it's such a long hour. They're there for <laughs> 70, 80 minutes, and it's really a struggle for this person to be in church for more than 60 minutes. We're in a culture where people are busy and their own perception, at least, or where they are when it comes to church is, I've got an hour. Right. And that's how much they're going to give. And if you try to take more than an hour of their time, that's going to be offensive on some level mm -hmm. to the culture and to the generation. And it's unfortunate, I think, growing up in Sunday school I, and making it a priority at my church now, I see so much value in that smaller context where you can get to know people and you can have that sense of deeper connection because you're talking and, you know, you can ask questions and that sort of thing. And so, well, we don't want to dismiss the cultural trends as a whole. That is something that I wish the church still valued as much as, as we did. Right. We want to push back against yeah. that a little bit. The way that we think of church, we believe has been valuable for us and that what makes that valuable would be valuable for the next generation as well. Right. So in our small group meeting that I'm a part of at church, we have uh, four generations. The interplay of our families is fantastic. We come together and we eat, and then we pay the teenagers to babysit the children <laughs> while the adults have a small group meeting that we couldn't have any other time in the week because it's just not possible with the busy schedule. And so we are working together 
to try to create that community, to create that family multi-generationally. And, and someone will say, well, I will say to those who have teenagers, tell me what it's like to have a 14-year-old. Yeah. Because in five years, I'm going to have a 14-year-old. Yeah. What is this experience like for you? And then we all cry because <laughs> they cry because they have a 14-year-old and I'm crying because I'm going to have and a 14-year-old. And the 14-year-old's crying because everybody's talking about them. Right. <laughs> but it takes intentionality, kind of pushing back against something that the culture says, you don't have time for this, this is not important, just focus on the people that you know. But in my experience, multi-generational ministry is, is really valuable and so we want to be working towards that in our church communities. All right, well, we are at the interview portion of our podcast, and this week we are joined by Gary Hansen. Welcome, Gary. Hey, guys. <laughs> Glad you're here, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks. Gary is a pastor at a church in Shoreline, Washington, which is right outside of Seattle, and uh, he's going to talk to us a little bit about his ministry. So, Gary, why don't you tell us a little bit about just kind of some background when you got to uh, Brian and what you've been doing there? Yeah, so I've been at Breen Bible Church now for just over eight years. We started in 2008, and I came on as the associate pastor, which was a new role. They didn't have that uh, when I first started, and, and I was sort of exploring that. And uh, those of you that are associate pastors may know that the nature of that role is pretty fluid. And uh, so... That's over, putting it nicely. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a political term. I've done several things over the years. There's a few things that I've been doing consistently during that time. Uh, I've been working pretty consistently with our college ministry, and I do some work with our worship ministry. That's, that's sort of ramping up a little bit. I'm doing a little bit more with that right now. I've done work with our adult teaching ministries, our outreach ministry. My main focus right now, I would say, would probably be doing some adult teaching myself, but not really overseeing that ministry. Uh, our college ministry and then our worship ministry are probably the three biggest things that I'm doing most often. So Brian's a little bit bigger than the church that I'm a pastor at and the church that Matt goes to, but you guys still, I think, kind of operate at the same level that we do in just explaining what you do is very telling of kind of the small church that pastors aren't just able to focus on one specific thing, which I think that's the dream of every pastor, right? To be able to yeah. spend 40 hours a week working on a sermon. <laughs> but the reality of our churches is we're kind of all across the board, and it sounds like that's been your experience. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other things that we want to talk about and what we have been talking about today is the joys and the strengths of being a part of a multi-generational church. Yeah, you mentioned when you came on to Shoreline, uh, Brian, that you worked primarily with college students, and that was one of the ministries that you were charged with. So can you say a little bit about what that ministry was like and what you've done to continue that over the last eight years? Yeah, I mean, we've always had a, a college ministry, but for, for years it was just part of our adult adult ministries. And yeah. there was a college group that would meet, and they, they were really self-running. And eventually, two years before I came, uh, my brother, who's, who's an elder at the church right now, he started a college worship service that was meeting weekly on, on Tuesday nights at the time, just to, to give that group a sense of identity and a sense of 
cohesion among themselves, and that has has continued to evolve over the years. And so we've been trying to find how do we transition somebody from a high schooler who who's a part of youth group, who's who's a part of the church, but really there's still there's still youth within the church, and by the time they turn 18, they're adults in the church, and by the time they graduate from our college ministry, our hope is that they have come to a place where they have a, a real ownership in the church mm. and aren't just feeling like this is my parents' church anymore, but this is my church, right. and and I have investment and care about about not just what's being done for me, but what am I giving back to the church. So your college ministry really kind of serves as like a transition group. Sense that operates at kind of a separate time, right? It's not Sunday morning, 9.45 or whenever your church service is. It operates on a separate time. Have you had any struggle of that kind of becoming its own thing, separate from the identity of the church? Yeah. So we have our, our act on Thursday night that is what our college group is called. And, and that meets every week, but they, we also have an adult uh, college Sunday school class, a, hmm. peer, a peer group that meets on Sunday morning. They're different, but they're the same. And, and we really think of ACT as, as the way in which that group becomes unified, becomes a, a group in and of itself. And, but then the college group on Sundays, that is the, the time where we begin to think about how are we integrating and, and working and serving our body, being a part of the body, um, right now, we just started this last week while I've been here. We have six of those college students are teaching an adult Sunday school class. Wow. And so they're going to be over the next 12 weeks, taking two weeks at a time. And it's an opportunity for them to be serving in the church and also be developing their skills as teachers. So they're, and they're teaching a, like people a, that are older than them? Yeah, it's like an elective class. And Very so cool. the way our, our church works, they have... Uh, anybody, any adult can choose between three or four classes. And and so they're just teaching one of those electives and, and it could be anybody in the church could come and join that class. So it's an opportunity for them to grow and learn and also for people to see the ways that these college students are um, really growing themselves. Yeah. So, yeah. I feel like that's a really unique model for doing college ministry that you don't hear very often. Here's a time for the college students to meet, and not only do they meet, but they're mainly the college students who grew up in the church. They want to be part of that group. And then on Sundays, they're coming to pour back into the life of the church, not just to meet as their own separate group. That's so rare. And I'm just wondering, what do you attribute that kind of culture to? How did you get to that point? Probably some trial and error. Uh, I would con- attribute some of that to just the students that we have right now. They're fantastic. And a lot of that is the work that that Kevin has done with those youth over the time to really help mold them into people who, who are passionate about serving the Lord, but also passionate about staying connected to... to their church. That in itself is unique. Yeah. yeah to I have think- a youth ministry that's focused on intentionally... Yeah, in fact, keeping students into just, their college years. We just hired our first youth pastor ever a couple years ago. Um, and one of the reasons we hadn't had a youth pastor is the fear that emphasizing a youth ministry would create a separate entity. And that hasn't happened, and thankfully, mm-hmm. but I think that is a fear. And so it's, it's really great that Kevin is able to intentionally 
kind of break that. Yeah, and it's I mean it's a it's it definitely is a process, and that doesn't happen with all of the kids. And and the reality is, it's not just Kevin; it's it's his leaders, hmm. and and I would say, it's the people within our church. I think I think through work that Kevin and I have done, uh, I I want to give more credit to Kevin because he's working with them. More often, he's really championing his ministry, but I think making sure that the youth feel a part of the church as much as they can and and encouraging as much as possible the parents of those youth, but also the, the friends of the parents of those youth or the other adults in the church to pray for the kids, to, I mean, our, ch- I mean, our church loves, loves our students, and that's always been true from, from the very beginning at Berean, and that has been a big part of who we have been. Uh, we haven't always done that as well as at other times. From day one, that was that was the message that was that was preached that that these kids matter and these kids are important. So whether they're in elementary school, or in high school, or in college, uh, we we care about them. One of the things we talked about earlier is that multi generational churches really only work when there is a spirit of flexibility within mm-hmm. the church, and so yep. the older older people have to realize and have to be willing to allow things to not be exactly to their preference. And at the same time, the younger people have to go into it realizing that, okay, this church isn't going to be playing all the cool music and mm-hmm. all the stuff that I like because there has to be this symbiotic relationship really with, with the whole generations. Is that something that you guys intentionally foster or is it something mm-hmm. that has just kind of developed out of the culture of your church? Yeah, it definitely has been intentional. I think a lot of the, that intentionality happened before I before I started at Berean. Uh, there was a lot of discussion. The church has been around for like 60 years. 50 years. 50 years. Yeah, 51. It's coming up on 52. Okay. So uh, probably in the decade or so before, when, well, when you, I mean, that's where you went to church. That's yeah. Jim. That's when you were in high school, a lot of that. Uh, and it was when we were first bringing drums into the sanctuary and things like that. And that was problematic for some people. Yeah. And some people didn't like it and, yeah. it, and it was hard for people. Um, and that's, it's, it's still an ongoing discussion for how do we, we have, we have youth who say, you know what, I'm looking for something. You know, we have Seattle area, we have some, some pretty big churches, some pretty, you know, trendy type churches and some people say you know this is this is more what I'm looking for and so I'm gonna I'm gonna go there because this is uh this is just not me and and so you're not gonna please everybody right but we are very intentional about what we call a blended worship service Mm. uh with our music style with the way that we do our scripture reading with the some someone might walk into that out of a more contemporary church and say wow this is a really old school and somebody from a really old school church would come and say, well, you guys are kind of, you know, farther ahead. But I think we want to be intentional about uh, ministering to families. Yeah. Um, and, and when people come, new people come to our church and they and they stick around, I mean, the comments from the older people a lot of times are like, I love to see that there are kids involved mm-hmm. in your service. Uh, a lot of times we have our youth and our college students a part of our worship leading we've been doing more of having them up front reading scripture Um, but we also have a choir and we have 
a lot of older people in that choir and younger people, and we're, we're probably not going to get rid of that. We have an organ. Sometimes we use it. Sometimes we don't. We have a drum set. Sometimes we use it. Sometimes we don't. Uh, sometimes you make nobody happy, and hopefully but, sometimes you make more most people happy. But again, it's that willingness for people to be flexible, and I know a lot of people yeah. in that church, and I know that they have that spirit of, okay, this might not be my song because it's a hymn with the organ, but this is my church. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's still going to be a part of it. Well, and part of what that comes from, I think, is a discussion on, on what is the body of Christ and an understanding that the body of Christ is not just young people, not just old people, but also, and I think we've been trying to have more dis- conversations about, about what is worship and what are we doing when we come to worship. And it's not about preferences, but it's about coming together as a diverse body and finding unity in these same songs that we're singing. Even if I may not like it, there's, there's, a, there's a surrendering in the act of worshiping together and a participation in, in making space for the other in, yeah, in our worship. You make room for each other, yeah. same way you do as yep. a family. Yep. All right, Gary, time for the stock and trade question we ask every pastor who comes on our... Both of them. Podcast. Dean episode both, two. Both Gary's. Yeah. So far, we have an only guest named Pastor Gary, and we hope to continue that trend as long as we can. So, Gary, standard question that we ask uh, coming on the podcast is, what is your greatest joy in ministry, and what's your greatest challenge in ministry? And maybe you could answer that from the perspective of uh, an associate pastor who's working in an intentionally multi-generational church. So I would say uh, the, the joys are by far seeing those students become a part of the church. And then the Sunday school class that's that's getting started now and, and to see these young people step up and say, yeah, I can do that. Our college group right now came to me uh, like four or five months ago and said, hey, we have this grill and, or this griddle and we want to bring it into church and we want to make pancakes on Sunday mornings just for whoever wants to come by. Like we're going to be making them for ourselves, but we also want to make sure that we open that up to the rest of the church. And I think that based on this podcast, that idea is going to catch on. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So they just, they make, they make pancakes on Sunday mornings and, and whoever wants to come in eats them. And it's an opportunity for, they said, we want to do this, uh, so that we can get to know the people in the church. This is an opportunity for them to come in and, and meet us and welcome them in and host that. So, I mean, those, those sorts of things are just huge. And, and I feel like that's sort of unheard of. Yeah. Yeah. It's remarkable. Maybe. It's really great. Yeah. Really, I mean, the greatest joys are to see any of, any of those people that you're working with see their lives changed for the better. Specifically deeper relationship for Christ. But I think within that, a deeper relationship of the body as a whole, I think those things are not disconnected. I'd say the biggest struggle as an associate pastor is is simply, I think, just a balance of, of uh, trying to find a regular rhythm of how to do my work well. Sometimes happen. I go through seasons where I'm doing that really well and other seasons where it feels like I'm just juggling a lot of things and uh, and not sure which one I can put down to to do the other ones better. So once again, the joy of working in a small church. Yep. yep. That's it. Okay, great, Gary. We uh, appreciate you coming on our podcast. Before we go, 
we thought maybe we'd ask if you had any recommendations for reading for anybody who would like to learn a little bit more about ministry and see things from your perspective. Sure. So there are two books that I, one I'm rereading right now, and the other one that I reread every year that I would say every pastor should read at least once in their lives. Uh, the first one, the one I reread every year, is called In Jesus' Name. It's a short little book, probably about 60, 80 pages by Henry Nouwen. Um, and it's just, it's a great little little book talking about the heart of a servant in, in ministry. And then the other one is called The Pastor as Minor Poet by Craig Barnes. And uh, it's just, it, it's a great book. So read it. Thanks for coming on, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Thanks. You've been listening to the Pastoral Calling Podcast with Jim Shamaria and me, Matt Loverin. Join us every two weeks as we start a new conversation about life and leadership in the local church. If you like us, make sure you follow us on SoundCloud or on iTunes, and also tell all your friends so they can join the conversation.